0: we're going to be in first john today the first four verses which you probably read Mitch's notes a couple of weeks ago uh, or last week actually when he was scheduled to preach it and uh, had to leave and i was tempted this week as i prepared to just use mitch's notes <laughs> looked pretty good to me it would have saved a lot of time but uh, as i began to study this passage the lord just spoke to me as well and We'll refer to some of the things that Mitch has said, because I know he wants to communicate this to the church. But um, I want to speak to you today about fellowship again. And uh, this is so important for us. And so glad that you're here. And is there a reason that there is a do not enter sign on this pulpit? Okay, I was scared. I got up here and it says do not enter on this. Sorry. First John chapter one. First John. We're going to look at the first four verses. First John. Chapter one. Verse four. Verses one through four. John writes. That which was from the beginning. Which we have heard. May be complete. This morning we're going to talk about fellowship. As a means of complete. Joy. Let's pray. Father this morning I come to you in the name of your son. And I thank you for the fellowship that we have in Christ. Thank you for these children. That you have brought into life. Life. And I pray for them that one day you will bring them into eternal life. Abundant life. Father, help me to make much of Jesus this morning. I pray for Mitch and his family. I pray that you would comfort them. Help them to grieve. And yet give them joy. Joy knowing that death has lost its sting and the grave has lost its victory. Father, I pray that through this text, you will draw us closer together in fellowship with Christ and with each other to complete our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember being in college, freshman or sophomore year. And I went to a friend of mine who lived across the hall from me and I invited him to church. I said, hey, man, you want to come to church with me? I had been inviting him several times and he never wanted to come. And I stuck with it, kept asking him. And one day he said, listen, I'm a Christian, but I don't need the church. I have my own church. I study the Bible myself. I read it. Occasionally, um, I pray, um, I don't need to go to church to get what you get there. I'm fine the way I am. I don't need any other Christians to have church. And the question I want to ask, and the question that Mitch would ask if he were here, and the question we need to think about this morning is, can you have God without having God's people? Can you really say that you are in fellowship with Christ and not be in fellowship with Christians? And hopefully by the end of today, you will all answer, no, it's not possible. We were made to be interdependent in fellowship with other believers. And so fellowship with other believers is not optional. And so what I want to do this morning in these four verses, John makes five assertions That are going to logically point to our joy being completed by fellowship with God in Christ with other believers. Say that again. Five assertions in four verses that logically point to our joy being completed by fellowship with God in Christ and with other believers. Okay? So let's look into the text. The first thing that I want us to see. And the first point that John makes in these first four verses, that John speaks as an eyewitness. He speaks as one who says that he has heard Christ, seen Christ, and touched Christ. He speaks as one who knew Jesus personally. And the first thing that John does in this small letter is he says that Christ, our life, has eternally existed with the Father. And you may notice that in both the Gospel of John and in 1 John, John begins his letter and his Gospel with Jesus being described as the eternal Word, the Logos, the Life. Jesus is our life. He says in 1 John chapter 5, if you flip over, you can read it, verses 11 and 12. He says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You cannot have eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. He is the source of life. John starts, 1 John, and he says this in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He says the same thing in John chapter 1. You've heard this before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so, when we have fellowship with Jesus, we share in His life. Jesus is our life, but John is making a point here about the nature of Christ, and he says Christ has eternally existed with the Father. He is not only the life, but Jesus is eternal. And that is crucial to understanding the importance of fellowship and eternal life. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, the word of life. In John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the word. You can read it literally in the Greek. In the beginning, the word was. The word already was. The logos was there before the beginning. Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. He will have no end. Jesus has eternally existed. There was never a time. In which the word was not. There's never been a time in which Jesus did not exist. Jesus is not a created being. He is not the brother of Michael the archangel. He is the eternal son of God who has eternally existed with the father. And that is foundational to the Christian faith. It is foundational to our understanding of Christianity. And it is one of the foundational statements that unifies us in fellowship. Jesus did not begin when the beginning began. He began the beginning. Let me say it another way. Jesus did not start when start got started. He started start. That's who we're talking about. We are talking about Alpha and Omega. He's before A. He's after Z. He is before the beginning. He is after the end. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is eternal. And so John starts off Theology 101, the the Christology. We want to study about Christ. beginning. In the beginning was the Word of life. He is the Logos. He is the Word which created everything. We could literally read Genesis chapter 1 and say, In the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. And he spoke. It was the logos. It was the word that God spoke and he created. He is eternal and he is our life. And that's the foundation that John begins with. Talking about Jesus. Talking about fellowship. And talking about our joy. So first, Christ, our life, has eternally existed with the Father. But now he makes a second statement. Not only is Jesus eternal... The second thing John says is that Christ, our life, was manifested in the flesh. The word manifested means revealed. He was revealed in the flesh. We have a big fancy word in the church for this. We call it the incarnation, right? The taking on of flesh. The Son of God. The eternal Son of God became a man. He entered into human history. The the eternal God entered into time. The Creator entered into creation. John chapter 1 verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or as Eugene Peterson said, God moved into the neighborhood. He put on flesh And he moved into our neighborhood and he became one of us. The eternal Christ who was with the Father from the beginning, who was very God of God, that Christ appeared in flesh and he became a man. There's two things about the incarnation we need to realize. First, the incarnation has been a great stumbling block throughout church history. From the very beginning, people have stumbled with this teaching that God would become a man and die. Sometimes I think we take it for granted. Because we've grown up hearing it maybe and we just assume, oh yeah, God became a man. But that is a huge stumbling block for many people. What was the stumbling block in John's day? If you read 2 John verse 7, it says, John told the church, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. There are many people in John's day, the Gnostics, who would, who would teach very radical teachings of Christianity. Things that were not Christian at all. They believed that it was sinful. That the body was sinful and that the spirit was good. And so for God to take on flesh, that was not a good thing. So He only appeared... To have a body. But we don't believe that. We believe that Jesus was both fully God. And fully man. He was 100% God. He was 100% man. And that he really took on flesh. He really suffered. He really felt pain. He really felt emotion. He really cried. He, he, was, he felt anger. He felt distress. He felt these things. Because he was truly a human being. John Piper says. Many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains a merely spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing a particular command and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. And this is... This is where the rub comes, right? Because there's a lot of people, they're okay with the idea that God can become a man. That's not the issue with the incarnation. The issue with God taking on flesh is that now, all of a sudden, this obscure Jewish carpenter in Nazareth 2,000 years ago suddenly has a a claim to authority on my life. I don't like that. A lot of people don't like that. You're telling me that that Jew who lived thousands of years ago in Bethlehem, that's the one who claims to be God who created everything. And he says, I have to believe in him and repent of my sins and trust in him. And I have to follow him and lay down my life for him and deny my mother and father and sister and brother for him. Christ is a stumbling block for many. And that is the issue of the Incarnation. The Incarnation causes rebellion in the human heart because a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth who lived in an obscure town 2,000 years ago is making a universal claim of authority on every human soul and he demands allegiance. And apart from God's grace, people will always reject that idea. We sing it at Christmas. Heart the Herald Angels sing. There's a second verse, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, laid in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail the incarnate deity. That's the part we don't like. I don't want to hail the incarnate deity, but he was pleased. In flesh with us to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Hail the incarnate deity. We ought to worship Christ this morning. Because not only is He eternal. He is the eternal Son of God. But He became flesh to rescue us from our rebellion against God. He came to our rescue. He's our deliverer and our redeemer. This was the problem that Moses felt at the burning bush. When God told Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses said, okay. But God, when I get there, who are you? Who do I tell them that you are? What is your name? Who can I compare you to? And God looks throughout the entire universe, and He says, "Oh Moses, you know what I'm like. I'm like... No, I'm not like that. Oh, I know. I- I'm like these stuff. Star- no, I'm I'm not like that. Oh Moses, I know. I'm like... No, Moses, you want to know what I'm like?" I am what I am. The only one you can compare to me is me. I am completely and utterly unique in every way. Until. The incarnation. And all of a sudden, the question that Moses asked at the burning bush finally has another answer. God, who can we compare you to? And God says, you want to know what I'm like? Look at that carpenter from Nazareth. You see that baby in that manger? That's what I'm like. Listen to him. Believe in him. And trust him. He is God. He is my son and I am well pleased with him. Not only is the incarnation a stumbling block, but the incarnation is a crucial test of doctrinal authenticity. Let me say that another way. What you believe about Jesus is going to tell us whether or not you're a Christian. John says it this way. 1 John 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. What is John doing? John makes the confession that God has come in the flesh, the doctrinal test of whether we are of God. So what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he was truly God? Do you believe that he's eternal? Do you believe that he took on flesh? Your answer to that question will tell us where you stand with Christ. You cannot claim to follow Christ and yet deny that he is God and deny that he came as a man. Now, this leads to a third thing that John says. First thing, Jesus is the eternal word of life. He has eternally existed with the Father. The second thing, Jesus took on flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. And because those two things are true, John makes a third statement. Through the incarnation of Christ, we have obtained fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And now we move from theology of Christ to fellowship. Because if those things about Jesus are not true, if he's not the eternal son of God, and if he did not come and take on flesh to die for our sins, you cannot have fellowship with God. And that's John's point, the third point. He says this in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Remember, he says in verse 2 that the life was made manifest. It was revealed. And now verse 3, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. That is only possible if Jesus is God and if Jesus was truly made man and if Jesus died for our sin. Apart from that, you have no fellowship with Him. Fellowship begins in the nature of God. And so the question we need to ask is, what does fellowship mean? Mitch has been talking about it for a long time But I want to make sure that we understand fellowship, this word koinonia in the Greek. What does it mean? Is fellowship really just about eating casserole after church? Is that all it is? Is fellowship only about hanging out and watching a movie or having a good time? I believe fellowship is something much deeper. Fellowship is a personal experience of sharing something Significant and in common with other people. Let me say that again. Fellowship is a personal experience of sharing something significant in common with others. It's the pleasure of being in a group when you see eye to eye on what really matters. That's why I, if you're not in a Connect group, you're missing out. Because I, I love. The men's group that I meet with on Tuesdays with Mitch and and, and Emmett and and on. on... Wednesdays with with some other guys we meet at Swift and Finch I love that fellowship and on Friday nights we have another connect group that Jenny and I go to with Brian Emerson Brad Poston Matthew LaHue I love those guys and I love their wives and I I love being with them and it's not just because we eat together and we talk about the Bible it's because we see eye to eye we are in fellowship we share common theology we share the faith with one another and I am encouraged by them That's fellowship. It's not just that we eat together. It's that we share life and we share the same thinking about Christ together. And that's what draws us together. It's not just that we eat. I love food. And I love coming to eat. But that's not what brings us together. Fellowship is being united in a common belief, in a common theology, in common doctrine about Christ. And so to say that you have fellowship with the Father and the Son, that means that you have to come, you've come to share in their values. You love the things that God loves. You hate the things that God hates. You see eye to eye with God. That's what it means to be in fellowship with Him. God is Trinity. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. And even the Trinity lives in communion with one another. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Equally God, yet co-dependent on one another. They're co-equal, co-eternal. They, they, they exist within themselves. And yet, Father, Son, Spirit live in community with one another. And you were made in the image of God. You were made to need fellowship. You need community. You need community with God and you need it with other believers. So how do we do that? What are some means of fellowship? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but two major ways. The first major way is through the word and through prayer. I put those together. I don't think you should pray apart from the word of God. And I don't think you should read the word of God apart from prayer. You should pray when you read and you should Read when you pray, if that makes sense. Let the Scripture guide your prayers. That's how you come into close communion with Christ, is you know what He said. You read what He has said and you speak to Him. The other way is just through fellowship through Jesus. We have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth and the life. He's the way we get to the Father. There's no other way to get to Him. And if you want to know who God is, you have to know Christ. You read John chapter 1 verse 18 and it says that God, the only God, has made him known. That Christ, the only begotten of the Father, has made the Father known. There is no other way for us to know who the Father is or what he is like apart from knowing Jesus. And if you do not trust Jesus, you do not have fellowship with him and you do not have fellowship with the Father. This is what John says, 1 John chapter 2, verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also. And so fellowship with God comes only through fellowship with Christ. And if that's true, we go to John's fourth statement. Since all of these things are true, since Jesus is the eternal God, since Jesus uh, is, uh, has been manifested in the flesh, and since Jesus has made fellowship with God possible through his death and resurrection, therefore, John makes the proclamation that Christ is the basis of fellowship with other believers. If Jesus is the way to have fellowship with God, Jesus is the only way you're going to have true fellowship with each other. What do I mean by that? Fellowship between man and man starts with fellowship between God and man. If you're not right with God, you will not be right with man. Verse 3 says this, 1 John 1, verse 3. That which we have seen, he's speaking of Christ. That which we have seen and heard We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. The way that you have fellowship with other believers is that you have fellowship with Christ. And if you don't know Christ, you can't live in true fellowship with other Christians. Let me read this backwards. Let me say it one way, and I'm going to read it backwards. Okay? Verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to read it backwards. The backwards version. Since our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, The only way we can cultivate fellowship with you is to proclaim to you what we know about the Son whom we have seen and heard. So the way you have fellowship is being in Christ. And here's what draws us together. It's not just that we we trust in Christ. The basis of our fellowship with each other is not based on a common experience. But on common doctrine. Common beliefs. Why do I say that? In order to experience fellowship with his readers. John tells them what he believes about Jesus Christ. Notice that John doesn't begin And just tell about his experience. He tells what he believes. He starts with theology. He says this is the eternal word. Who's eternally existed with the father. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words. There is no significant fellowship among people. Who do not share the same view of Jesus Christ. To put it bluntly. That's why we can't worship with Mormons. They have a different view of Jesus Christ. That's why we can't worship with Jehovah's Witnesses. They have a different view of Jesus. We don't worship with Muslims because they have a different view of Jesus. If you don't have the right view of Jesus, you can't worship together. And it's not based on your experience of Jesus. It's based upon the truth that Jesus has revealed about himself. Do we believe the same thing about Jesus? And if not, we can't worship in spirit and in truth. And so the deeper and the stronger you want our fellowship to be, the more theology must be shared, which is very counterintuitive to what a lot of people think. Here's what a lot of people think. A lot of people think if you want people to come together and to be unified in fellowship, then you need to dissolve, dissolve doctrine and break it down to the smallest common denominator possible so we can just all get along. And what does that do? Creates heretics, for one thing, and it doesn't bring people together. When John, here's here's how this works. I'll give you two examples. When John wants to cultivate fellowship with a group of people, he writes them a letter filled with theology. When Paul wanted to prepare a missionary fellowship to support him and send him to Spain, he wrote this theological book called Romans. When he wanted people to come together, he didn't neglect theology. He preached theology and he preached it deep and he preached it wide and he preached Christ. And he wanted people to know theology because it's our theology that brings us together, not your common experience. Because our experiences have all been different, right? I'm pretty sure most of you came to Jesus in a very different way than everyone else. And so there's some lessons we need to take from this. That our, our unity is in doctrine, not in our experience. And so we should avoid basing the depth of our fellowship on a common experience rather than a shared theology. As much as I love many aspects of the charismatic movement, I fear that one of the dangers is that there is a reduction of theology and an emphasis on experience. And we need experience, right? We need to experience things in Christ in our walk with God. But it becomes dangerous when we don't all share the same experience. And so it's our theology that needs to bring us together. This was the purpose of the the great creeds of the church. The Athanasian Creed. the, The Nicene Creed. This is why churches have doctrines. Doctrinal statements. It's why... The the elders of this church took so much time to think about what do we actually believe? Why did they take the time to type it all out, have a new members class, let you sit there for six weeks and let them explain what we believe? Because that's what unites us. It's not just, oh, you believe in Jesus? Well, I believe in Jesus. I trusted Jesus. I love Jesus. Well, great. Let's come together. It's more than that, right? Or it should be. We take theology very seriously. A second principle, a lesson, is that this text clearly teaches that Christians should not marry unbelievers for a very obvious reason. Deep fellowship is not possible when two people do not have the same beliefs and affections for Christ. It's not just because Paul said it in First and Second Corinthians that you shouldn't be unequally yoked. It's that if a Christian and a non-Christian come together, you can't have fellowship with one another because you don't have right beliefs about Jesus. Finally, where is John moving with this? His goal is fellowship, but John has a greater goal beyond fellowship. And it is joy. Your joy and mine. I want you to see how this works? Look at verse four, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let me let me bring everything together and tell you the final thing that John's teaching us. Remember the five things he's, he's the assertions he's made. Number one, Jesus is the eternal God; he has eternally existed with the Father. Not only is Jesus done that, but Jesus is also Was manifested in the flesh. The incarnation. And because those two things are true. Because of the nature of Jesus. The foundation of what we believe about Jesus. He's eternal. He became a man. The third thing. Jesus came and made fellowship with God possible. Through his death and resurrection. And because Jesus has made fellowship with God possible. Now, fourthly, we can have right fellowship with one another. Because we have fellowship with God. And because all of those things are true. The fifth thing that John uh, John is saying here is that the fullness of our joy comes when others share our delight in the fellowship of the Father and the Son. Hopefully, this will make sense after I finish explaining it. The fullness of our joy comes. Not just by you believing in Jesus, but when others also come to believe in Christ. The best illustration I can give was standing in front of you just a minute ago. I guarantee you the parents of those children, those sweet babies, were joyful this morning. But parents, let me tell you, your joy will not be complete until your child comes to faith in Christ. Mothers... Your joy will not be complete until your children come to know Jesus. That's what John is saying. I want your joy to be complete because I want you to have fellowship with Christ like we have fellowship with Christ. And my joy will be fulfilled and complete when you believe in Christ and have fellowship just as we enjoy fellowship. Now. There's a minor issue with the text. I want to see what you guys think. Verse 4 says, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. If you have a King James Bible, your Bible says, We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. The Greek manuscripts say both. Some have our joy. Some say your joy. It's one Greek letter question is, which one is right? Who is, whose joy is complete when other people come to faith in Christ? Is it the church's joy? Is it our joy when somebody comes? Or is it their joy when they come to fellowship in Christ? Both of them are true, right? If there is someone this morning and you you have the opportunity today. To come into fellowship with God because of what Christ has done for you. If you are lost this morning and you don't know Jesus. You have the opportunity to come. And if you believe in Christ this morning. You trust in him and you repent of sin. You believe the gospel. I promise you there's going to be a lot of joyful people in here. Our joy will be complete. But if you trust in Christ, your joy is going to be complete too. Because you're going to know true fellowship and true intimacy with God. So the truth is they're both correct. Fellowship among believers is our source of complete joy in the gospel. How many of you, and I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, or this is not meant to draw attention to anybody, how many of you have just ever had the experience to lead somebody to faith in Christ? Just You can remember a very vivid experience that... Man, I just remember somebody, I, I witnessed to them, and I, I shared with them and prayed for them. and they, I, It might be a family member, it might be a child. Anybody had that experience before? You got to see somebody come to faith? Great, four of you. Great, all right. Well, I'm just kidding. You've had that experience. That is a powerful experience when, when God allows you to be a part of that person coming to faith. Now, here's the truth. If you haven't been in that experience, that doesn't mean that you're not being fruitful. We've talked about this before. Um, There's people who sow seeds of the gospel. There's some who plant, some who water and some who see the increase, some who get to see the fruit of it. But when you get to share in that process, there is something powerful about getting to see someone else come to faith that completes your joy. I mean, I'm so glad I'm in the faith. I'm so thankful for God's mercy to me. But there is just something about seeing other people come to faith too that increases my joy. It's, it's like, okay, I, I can't add anything more to God, but we can add more knowledge of God. There's more, more people knowing more of God. And so I'm not adding to God, but I'm adding more people knowing more about Him. And that makes me more joyful. Does that make sense? Let me say it a few ways. Our joy in god 's fellowship is made complete in the joy that others have in god 's fellowship. Let me say said another way. I found out like, four different ways to say this: Our joyful satisfaction in God will only be completely fulfilled by the joyful satisfaction of others in God. I got another way as more this is a simple word simpler is that a word simpler way as more and more of others know more and more of God, you will know more and more joy in Jesus. And so how does that apply? I got one more. How does that apply? What do you do with that? You are free to pursue your own happiness by seeking the holy happiness of others. You can pursue your own joy by seeking for others to be joyful in Christ. And that's what John is saying. Our fellowship in this church, we come together because we believe the same thing about Jesus. We, we have fellowship with one another because we have, we have fellowship with God because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And our joy in our fellowship is only going to increase as more and more people come to, to the knowledge of Jesus. You think you're joyful now in Christ? It gets better. As more and more people know more and more of Christ, you will know more and more of joy in God. How do you know this is true? How can you be sure that this is true? There's something that I was going to say at the beginning of this message, and I'm going to close with it. How can you be sure that your joy will be complete? How can you be sure that you have fellowship with God? How can you be sure? It's because John writes as an eyewitness and what does he say he says i'm not just proclaiming to you something that i i kind of know about he says in verse one that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen and which we have touched John speaks as an eyewitness and he says, I've heard Christ, I've seen Christ and I've touched him and my witness about the son of God is true. My goal this morning is to exalt Jesus and to show us that we can trust the word of God because of a witness for Christ who not only heard him and not only saw him, but who touched him and his testimony is true and your joy can be complete. How do we know this? John had heard Jesus. John heard Jesus in Matthew 4 when he called him from his fishing nets and he said, follow me. John heard Jesus in John 4 when he told a Samaritan woman he was the living water. John heard Jesus in John 6 when he told a great crowd that he was the bread of life. John heard Jesus in John 8 when he told the dark-hearted Pharisees that he was the light of the world. John heard Jesus in John 11 when... Jesus told Martha at Lazarus' tomb that he is the resurrection and the life. John heard Jesus in John 14 when he told the disciples he is the way, the truth, and the life. And at the end of his life, John heard Jesus in Revelation 1 say, I am the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. Who was, who is, and who is to come, I am the Almighty. But John didn't just... Here, Jesus, John saw Jesus. He saw Him in John chapter 1 passing by as John the Baptist proclaimed, here comes the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. In John 2, he saw Jesus turn a watered-down wedding into a wine-filled celebration. In John 5, he saw Jesus tell a lame man at the pool of Bethesda to rise up and walk. In John 9, Je- John saw Jesus tell a blind man to open his eyes and see again. In John 11, John saw Jesus tell a dead, stinky Lazarus to come out and take his grave clothes off. In John 13, John saw Jesus share bread and the cup with a man who would betray him. In John 19, John saw Jesus as the resurrected... Or, in John 19, John saw Jesus as the crucified Lord between two thieves and he bore the curse of sin and death on the tree. In John 20, John saw Jesus as the resurrected Lord who had conquered death, hell, and the grave. And at the end of his life in Revelation 1, John saw Jesus as one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John said, you can trust him, you can have joy in him, because I have heard him, and I have seen him, but I have also touched him. I have touched him. In John 13, Jesus touched John by taking a towel and washing his feet. In John 20, John touched the resurrected Lord by touching the the scars in his side and in his hands. And in Revelation 1, at the end of his life, John fell down like a dead man when the Lord touched him one last time. And he said, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death, hell and the grave. This is the Son of God that we worship. This is the Son of God that we are united around. This is the Son of God who gives us fellowship one with another and with God. And we have joy in Him and in Him alone this morning. So let your joy be in Christ. And encourage one another in the faith to keep trusting the Lord even when it's tough. Keep trusting the Lord, even in sickness, even in death. Keep trusting the Lord. Trust Him, because we have heard from faithful witnesses who have heard, seen, and touched Him. And we would do well to listen to those witnesses, to embrace Christ as the source of our eternal joy. This morning, church, find your joy in Christ and seek the fullness of your joy in the fellowship of other believers. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Word. And thank You for eyewitnesses who can testify to the truth of Jesus. Father, I pray that our eyes would be lifted up this morning away from our circumstances and our eyes would be lifted to the resurrected Christ. The Eternal One. The God who became flesh to rescue us. The God who died to give us fellowship with You. The God-man who gives us fellowship with one another. And the Son of God who completes our joy in the fellowship of believers. Father, I pray that you would help us to worship this morning. Not only in spirit, but in the truth and the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done. Father, this morning I pray for any person who may have questions who may not be in fellowship with You, Father, would You bring them to repentance and faith? I pray that they would find a, a, one of the elders, one of the pastors in the back and speak with them and pray with them. I pray that You would draw them to Yourself. Father, I pray for the church this morning that You would unite us in one body, one mind, one spirit, one purpose. Help us to worship in spirit, in truth, and with soul-satisfying joy. In Jesus' name, amen.